Hey, Vince McMahon, it's time for this week's Stick to Wrestling podcast. Oh, no, give me a break. Oh, brother. And you will find me waiting for the Stick to Wrestling podcast to be released time after time. I want to thank Cindy Lauper for writing and performing that song about her favorite podcast, Stick to Wrestling, where if you give us 60 minutes, perhaps indeed, we will give you a wicked good and raw bone podcast. That's not my favorite podcast, John. Shut up. Cindy's not being nice. All right. uh, Before we get rolling, I want to invite you to join our Facebook group. We have all kinds of fun wrestling discussions, pictures, results, free parking, pizza by the slice. You name it, we got it. Just ask to be included, and you will be. If you want to follow me on Twitter, just search John McAdam and follow the guy who has the Stick to Wrestling logo as his avatar. I want to thank David Salchow for donating to the Stick to Wrestling podcast. David says, thanks for sponsoring the Stick to Wrestling Fantasy Baseball League. But we need to talk about the rules for next season. Yeah, I totally blew up those rules, David. Sorry. But if you send enough money, you get to make all the rules. Just kidding. Maybe not. I also want to thank Chris Salestad for uh, donating to the podcast. If you would like to donate to Stick to Wrestling, keeping this an ad-free and a sponsor-free program, which we're not going to do anyway, but uh, you can donate via PayPal to prowrestlingarchives at gmail.com. And with that, I want to... Uh, bring on a popular returning guest, Mr. Steve Crawford. Steve, how are you? I am great. I'm glad we're rolling into Memphis here. Always, yeah. a, always a fun place to go. Yeah, you said you grew up watching Memphis every single week, and I was like, wait a minute, I should get him on talking about Memphis wrestling. So when did you start watching Memphis wrestling, Steve? Oh, geez. Uh, you know, I watched it on and off throughout the, the 70s and got pretty hardcore about it in the 80s, but I remember, you know, probably being seven, eight years old, seeing um, Jim White and Jerry Lawler and Sam Bass. So, so that goes back to about 1973-ish. Wow. And, uh, yeah. So, yeah, I, I was I was in and out throughout the 70s. You know, generally uh, a big program or something exciting would happen and everybody's talking about it and, and everybody starts watching the show. Now, did you go to a lot of the matches or, I mean, where did you live at the time? Well, I lived in the big city of uh, Rector, Arkansas, which is uh, a town of 2,000 people, seven miles from the Boot Hill of Missouri. Whoa, you city slicker, you. Oh, uh, we, were, we were boonies. We were boonies. Uh, about 40 miles from Jonesboro, Arkansas. Yeah, Memphis, they actually, you know, in the 70s, they ran Jonesboro Weekly, and then, and then later they ran it about once a month. But I, I almost never went to the wrestling matches. I went to a spot show in Kennett, Missouri, about 1983 ish, uh, uh, Rick Link was on that card, and uh, Lawler and Mantell were facing the Moon Dogs, and Lawler spent about 20 seconds in the ring and pulled his strap down, and they went to a DQ. So, <laughs> I, I went to a show in Memphis when Lawler basically did that in 1985 against Buddy Landell. He's just like, I'm not here to take a shower. I'm just showing up and going home. Yeah. Yeah, I, I don't know if he was injured or unhappy or what. I mean, Mantell had, had worked, you know, a little bit of the match, maybe five, ten minutes. They tag in Lawler, and he's like, yeah, the car's running, got to leave. So, <laughs> now, Kenneth Missouri, famous for the brawl of Jerry Lawler and Jeff Jarrett against the Moondogs in 92. 
Yeah, the second most famous thing. I was born there, so that's the most famous thing. There you go. <laughs> there we go. All right. So we took questions from the Stick Tree Wrestling Universe in the Facebook group, and we're going to start with that, those. Uh, you are the guest. Uh, please give me your first question. Okay. Uh, scrolling through the questions, I think somebody asked about you know, the split from Goulas in 1977 and what led to that and what were the results of that. Uh, so that's that's always an interesting topic to delve into. So, you know, kind of the background was Nick Goulas and Roy Welch had, had the, the large territory that covered, you know, mainly central Tennessee, east Tennessee, Alabama, and and Memphis was, was the, you know, the other city. And uh, Jarrett started booking it in 1977, and then he opened up Louisville and Evans, Evanston, Indiana, Evansville, Indiana. Evansville. So, Evansville, Indiana. Uh, so he opened up those cities. And so 1977, there's a, a split and a very, very short promotional war. And, and what caused the split? That's that's the question. And uh, Jarrett has talked about this. He's, he's done interviews about it. He, he wrote about it in his book. And, and his contention is that he had paid $50,000 to Nick Goulas to be co-owner of the promotion. And I, I did the math, and fifty thousand dollars in nineteen seventy seven would be equal to about two hundred and forty thousand dollars today. So a very significant amount of money. And and Gula said, no, you didn't buy into the promotion. You bought an option to buy into the promotion, and the option period is expired. So and I'm keeping the money. And I'm keeping the money. So that's that's Jarrett's contention. Uh, we never got the Gula side of this story. Um, so wouldn't there be something called a contract drawn up between (laughs) these parties that, that spelled this out? Well, Jared said that Goulas wrote up a contract and he just signed it. He didn't have his his own attorney look at it. So he basically says Nick, Nick just outsmarted him on in this situation. But you know, what, why would, what would be his incentive to screw his business partner over like this? I, I don't know. Because he's a wrestling promoter. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Now, now Jackie Fargo always said that Jarrett, you know, stole the promotion from him. And uh, now I, I think you you said you didn't see the movie Memphis Heat, right? Uh, no, I haven't. We I I will, and we'll have a show about it at some point. Yeah, I I watched that in uh, the Texas Theater in Dallas, which is famous for being the place where Lee Harvey Oswald was apprehended after he shot JFK. Um, and it's it's still an open theater this many years later. And I think there were about seven people in attendance that day. So <laughs> it was a big I can't ticket, say I'm surprised. Big ticket event in Dallas. But now Fargo, you know, says that Jarrett stole the promotion from him. So, you know, everybody's got these different points of view. So at that time, um, they were on, you know, there were three stations in Memphis at that time. Growing up in Rector, we had six television stations. Three of them came from Memphis. Uh, so they were on Channel 13, which I think was the uh, ABC affiliate. Jarrett and Lawler make a deal with Channel 5, the NBC affiliate. That's when Lance Russell, who'd been the program director at Channel 13, comes over. Dave Brown, who'd been the weatherman, comes over. And uh, Nick has no TV in Memphis. So he has the rights to the Coliseum, and he runs the Coliseum for about two months, but he has no television. And the last time he he promoted there i think they had less than 500 people in the coliseum uh so in the meantime jared is is running um the the uh 
what used to be the Ellis Auditorium and then became the Cook Convention Center. And then as soon as Goulas leaves, he takes over. So really within two or three months, this whole thing is, is wrapped up. I mean, it was a very quick uh, situation. And, um, you know, I, I think the timing was kind of interesting because the timing was very fortuitous for, for Jerry Jarrett because the summertime was always when the Memphis Territory had the, had the biggest crowds. So the split happens in the spring. And then the summer, he he pulls the trigger on the Dundee-Lawler feud. Now, you know, Lawler had been a main event guy there for several years. Dundee had come in in 1975, established himself as, as a big draw. But he kept them apart until he was running his own territory. And then they do sell out business for like 10 weeks in a row. I mean, they have a huge program. So uh, if, if Jarrett really got screwed uh, in the short term, he really came out ahead in the long term. Now, here's something I've always wondered about Memphis. Maybe you don't have the answer. They ran every Monday night like clockwork, Mid-South Coliseum forever. I always wondered why they ran on Monday night as opposed to a Friday night or preferably a Saturday night because, you know, that way you have to worry about kids getting up for school. Yeah, I, I just think it was the, the tra- you know, they'd established that tradition. Maybe it was easier to book the Coliseum on Monday nights. I mean, that's was, what I'm thinking. It was basically a concert venue. You know, you'd go see the Arena Rock acts at the Mid South Coliseum. Maybe, maybe it was just easier that there wouldn't be conflicts with with other things on Monday night. But yeah, it was. You know, I mean, you know the loop. Uh, Monday night Memphis, Tuesday Louisville, Wednesday Evansville, Thursday and Friday got to be spot shows, um, and then. Saturday had been Jonesboro, Arkansas until Goulas went out of business and then it became Nashville, Tennessee. But yeah, I, you know, every once in a while they would run a Sunday show and uh, Lance, Lance would always mention like Kennett, Missouri. And when, when they promote a Sunday show, Oh, if you're up there in the boot hill in Kennett, Missouri, you can come on <laughs> down. You'll have plenty of time, you know? Uh, so, so that was funny that they'd always throw out a broader net when they did that. But uh, yeah, it, it was, you know, it was, it was kind of weird, but, it, it was such a tradition. People knew it was going to be there predictably every Monday night, and they drew thousands of people for years, so so it worked. I mean, I remember seeing a, a cover of a magazine that, you know, they had Jerry Lawler and the guy Larry Zonka, and they're like, Jerry Lawler is outdrawing Larry Zonka here in Memphis. And if you think about it, that's kind of incredible, but not really. I mean, Larry Zonka, for those who don't know, was a national name as a football player who played for the world football league and they had a franchise in memphis and they just didn't do that well but the wrestling did fine yeah and are you familiar with the heat around that picture of jerry lawler i'm sorry are you familiar with the heat around that picture of jerry lawler no i'm it's not that magazine cover okay so uh in that magazine cover he he's shown with the nwa title belt and well, he had had a match with Terry Funk and they did some did some sort of disputed finish. And when they got to the back, Lawler grabs the title and says, take a picture of me. And so that picture gets circulated. Uh, so the next time the NWA champion is in town, it's Harley Race. So Harley is either legitimately upset at Lawler thinking it was disrespectful to do that, or he's playfully upset with Jerry Lawler for, for doing that. But Race tells the story that Lawler was afraid to get into the ring with him, and he basically had to go to the ref and say, hey, I'm going to work with the guy. 
because it was putting heat on Lawler, you know, that, that he was like legitimately afraid to go into the ring is Harley Race's story on that. And, and interestingly enough, you know, shortly after that, they switched from the NWA to the AWA and it was working with Nick Bockwinkel instead of Harley Race. So I, I don't know how all those factors flow together, but that's that's kind of an interesting little backstory there. That that is interesting. And if Harley was legitimately upset, I mean, that's kind of crazy. There are pictures of you know, like Buddy Landell with the NWA title, Dusty Rhodes with the WWF title. I mean, I could go on and on, but it was kind of a common practice. Well, I think I think Harley liked to screw with people. I mean, yes. you know, Ric Flair loves, <laughs> loves to tell the the Harley race stories about him in bars and and him, you know, just going out of his way to antagonize people just to see the reaction. So, you know, he he could have just been working Lawler and Lawler could have just been like, hey, is Harley race legitimately pissed? I don't want to deal with legitimately, you know, angry Harley race. So, Nobody you know, did. <laughs> exactly. All right. Yeah, that was some great information. Thank you, Steve. I mean, I, I, I did not know a lot about, about what you just spoke about. So thank you. Okay. Adam Luce asks, how did Memphis get on twice in Boston, once in 1990, the other in 1994? In 1990, it was on Channel 27 on Saturdays. And in 1994, it was on Channel 62, opposite WCW Saturday night. Um, I mean, I can only speculate, but I mean, 27 was kind of a middle-of-the-pack channel. 62, I don't even remember Channel 62 in Boston. I don't think they were ever on our cable system. So, I mean, they were kind of medium-low stations that were looking for programming. but. It blows my mind that I never knew about this. I mean, I had friends locally who were wrestling fans and nobody told me. Um, I had, you know, I got the Observer, I got the newsletter. You would think there would be a little thing. Oh, they're on in Boston now. But I never knew until Adam asked this question. So, Steve, I guess the next question is yours, unless you want to jump in on this Boston thing. Well, I don't know if any of those stations were the financial news network. I know for a while that Memphis and Continental wrestling tapes were being syndicated, which which was very bizarre that you would have this wrestling program and then underneath, you know, you'd have a stock ticker, you know, yes. going on the stock market during the day. Uh, I, I don't know if it was tied up in that or not, but uh, yeah, it was very strange because that's how I was seeing Continental some during that time was, was like on a financial news network. I remember seeing Ric Flair versus Kerry Von Erich on the financial news network, and they had that stock ticker going on underneath. And I'm like, guys, it's Saturday night. The market's been closed for a long time. Can you please get this thing off my TV? But they didn't listen. There you go. Yeah, it was it was strange. All right. Your turn to pick a question, Steve. Okay. The question I'm going to pick is, Thoughts on who had the best in-ring chemistry with Lawler, Austin Idol, or Bill Dundee? So who do I think had the best in-ring chemistry? And there's kind of two different ways I look at this question. I think on a one-on-one matchup, I think that Bill Dundee was a much better worker than Austin Idol. And really, he he consistently drew bigger audiences throughout you know, his runs with Lawler than Idol did. Uh, they they both did very well at times, obviously. Uh, but I think that, you know, that Dundee and, and Lawler, I think there was just some magic there. You know, th- th- there was, they they legitimately didn't have great relationship. Dundee always wanted to be the top guy. So I think, you know, he pushed Lawler really hard in his matches. And uh, 
I, I think that, you know, they just had classic matches together. The other way of looking at in-ring chemistry is, is a tag team. So, you know, as a tag team, yeah, Dundee and Lawler worked on top a lot as a tag team together. But when, you know, Austin Idol teamed with Lawler, I thought that was a much more legitimate looking team. If you're talking about facing the Freebirds, you know, Road Warriors, you know, when, when they started, you know, kind of having national TV programs, you could say, here's a team from Memphis that can compete with these national tag teams. These are two legitimate, you know, superstars that have the the look to to work together in that way. So I think, you know, one-on-one Dundee as a tag team idol. My own soul, first of all, if, I mean, if I wanted to go outside the question, I would say Dutch Mantel and, you know, Nick saying Nick Bockwinkel wouldn't be fair, but I think Dutch Mantel had better in-ring chemistry versus Lawler than the other two. But as far as Dundee versus Idol goes, I mean, I think it's a no contest. Bill Dundee a, a million times over. I mean, in 85, he had they never showed the entire matches. But I mean, talk about classic clips of matches that, you know, just looked fantastic. I mean, I am a big fan of Austin Idol, but he was not a particularly good in-ring performer. And I mean, they showed the clips of the matches in 87 and I was I mean I was just never impressed by the in-ring product the talking outside the ring was way better than anything else but inside the ring yeah yeah and I I honestly don't know that Idol and and Lawler ever sold out the Mid-South Coliseum you know even their their great run in 1987 they they never sold it out whereas Dundee and Lawler did you know several times you know probably 10 or 12 times yeah I mean and and it was the the times were changing. I mean, the Memphis promotion, you know, in 85, they were hanging on, you know, competing against Vince. But two years is a long time in the wrestling business in the 80s. And I mean, you could just tell the fans knew they were going to see a much more minor league product than the other promotions on TV, namely the, the WWF and, and uh, the NWA. Oh, oh, absolutely. I mean, it certainly got to the point, probably around 1985, that you just you couldn't pretend that it was equal anymore. Uh, you know, when cable first came on, you had all these established stars and all these established promotions, and you could kind of fool yourself into saying, "Yeah, this wrestling's as good as this other wrestling is." But you know, as as the national expansion evolved, like you say, you 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 couldn't convince yourself anymore that it was the same. It. it it started looking pretty minor league. They did have the, um, you know, 1986 sellout with uh, the Texas death match, Mantel and Buddy Landell against um, Lawler and Dundee. I think it was um, the last sellout. Mantel. I think yeah. it was Mantel and Mantel and Lawler against uh, Dundee and, and uh, Landell. That's right. what you said, right? right? I, I may have messed <laughs> it up, but yeah, yeah. That's what I meant to say if I didn't. But yeah, it's it certainly was not a major league promotion at that at that time. No, I remember. Um, I mean, in 1988, they basically went on TV and promised you that this is it. Jerry Lawler is winning the AWA championship from Kurt Henning, and it did not sell out. It actually fell a few thousand away from selling out. And to me, that was a big uh oh moment in Memphis wrestling. You know, if they didn't sell out for that, they're not going to sell out for anything. No, and, and, you know, the next week after that, you know, they followed that up with Lawler 
facing Dundee again. And it's like, okay, we, we've wrestled for all these huge things, but we've never wrestled for anything as big as the world title. And, you know, they, they didn't draw fleas. I mean, it was just like, uh, okay, you're the world champion now. So why, you know, it was, yeah. the, the, the chase was, was much more important than the, than the accomplishment. I think the fans too, just, they, they generally knew that, look, you know, this was not the days of, okay, WWS got Backlund, NWA has got race. We've got Bachwinkle. There's not much difference between those three. Like, you know, I loved Kurt Henning, but, the 1987, 1988 version of Kurt Henning you just didn't have the star power of a Hulk Hogan or a Ric Flair. And I think the fans knew that. No, and, and I think it absolutely it would have been much more meaningful in Memphis if Lawler would have won the belt from Nick Bockwinkel because those two had so much history. And I, and I think they worked much better together, even though Henning was a great worker. I think that, you know, I think I think people looked at Bockwinkel as as a legitimate world champion in Memphis. And then Henning was was a relatively young guy, and I just don't people think people viewed him the same. No, I see it the same way, and I think even the most, uh, I think even the Bachwinkle hardcores had to know that, like by the mid '80s, he was getting older. I mean, he he looked older. He was still a, a great competitor, but I mean, you know, he was in his fifties by that point, and it showed. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, you you, you reach to that point where. You know, maybe maybe you should be in the semi-main event. Maybe you should be in a tag team. <laughs> you know, maybe you shouldn't be carrying the world strap around anymore. And they kind of passed that with Nick. But, uh, like, great worker, great world champion in his prime. No, absolutely. That's not a, a knock on Nick. It's just a, a business based partially on cosmetics. And that had kind of passed Nick by. All right. I have a question from John Mettler. Steve, that has a a question for me to you in here because I'm not remembering correctly. John asked, John McAdam, I purchased my first Memphis tape from you in the early 90s. What was the first Memphis tape you traded for? And Steve, it was it wasn't traded for. It was purchased. Um, I would get Memphis wrestling. I would I would buy it from this gentleman in Memphis. It had the 90 minute WMC show. And then it had the Jerry Lawler show, which was kind of funny. And Steve, in right around this time, was there also like a Sunday morning wrestling show? Because it's been 35 years, and I'm a little bit foggy on it. But I remember seeing in 87 a really good match between Nick Bockwinkle and a very young Jeff Jarrett. And... Uh, you know, d- am I forgetting, like, was there a, like a 30 minute show on Sunday that featured uh, Mid-South Coliseum matches or d- am I imagining this? No, I don't think so. Yeah, you had the, the Memphis that was was Saturday morning and they, they would tape the Jerry Lawler show at that time and that would run Sunday morning. Now, for a while, there were also I think there was a program based out of Jackson, Tennessee, where they did regular matches as well. And I think there were separate tapes for that. So so that could have come from from, you know, that program. But we did not see that. It was not aired on a Memphis television station. Okay, thanks for that. And that's probably what I got, because I think I got that show, the 90 minute show and the Jerry Lawler show and a five hour tape arrived every two weeks. And uh, the Jerry Lawler show was funny. I mean, sometimes he would have a wrestling guest and it would be really interesting. And sometimes it would be his wife, Paula Lawler, and he like picking against NFL odds for some 
<laughs> it was yeah. very, it was good campy fun, but I can't imagine the station was always happy with that. Yeah, I mean, you know, you had Peter Noon of Herman's Hermits on there, you know, I mean, people that would just, I guess, be in Memphis doing a show or something, somehow they'd be able to, you know, finagle them in at times, or, you know, he would go to watch the, the Cleveland Browns preseason you know, practices and do interviews with the, you know, the safety and defensive back of the Cleveland Browns or something. So yeah, it was, it was really eclectic television. It really was. Like I said, it was good campy fun. You know, Jerry Lawler interviewing Hanford Dixon or whoever from the Cleveland Browns. And I don't know, but anyway, uh, all right, you're, you're, you're up, Steve. What question would you like to talk about? Okay. Um, so here's the question. Uh, if the Lawler Jarrett split happened in 1983, who do who do you think would have went with who? Not the entire roster, just the main players. So there's a couple of different kind of backstories on this situation. One of the main stories that's gone around over the years is, you know, Jarrett splits with Goulas in 1977. He promises Lawler X per, X percentage ownership in the company. That never happens. Jerry, you know, quote forgot. <laughs> he promised him a certain <laughs> ownership in the company once it gets off and running. Jarrett buys this, you know, 18,000 square foot mansion in, in Nashville, invites everybody in the promotion to see it. And, and Lawler gets incensed saying, hey, you know, you you built this off my back. And him and Lance Russell start working to start their own promotion. Ricky Morton told a, a very interesting story recently, which I'd never heard. And, and some of this makes sense is that Lawler was was upset that the fabulous ones were getting such a big push in the territory. And and there's a few reasons that kind of makes sense. And, and one of them is, you know, Jimmy Hart had written about how upset Lawler got in like 78 or so when they started giving handsome Jimmy Valiant a big baby face push. And the other thing that kind of works into this is I had read years ago in The Observer that the fabulous ones would have stayed with Jarrett in the split. So if, if the split would have occurred, Terry Taylor would have stayed with Jarrett. He's the, he's the person that supposedly told Jerry, hey, hey, this is what's going on behind the scenes. And that kind of, you know, fits in with Terry the- Taylor is something like that. <laughs> yeah. Shocking. Shocking. Right. So Terry Taylor is playing off a of stooge and, and the fabulous ones. And, and then probably, you know, that's the only one Melter said. Melter said these are the ones that would stay with with uh, Jarrett and the rest of the crew would have gone with Lawler. I don't know that Lawler would have hired Dundee to have been on the crew. Uh, it's, it's, I was it's, thinking it's, the same thing. Yeah, it's it's a good thing for everybody. It didn't happen. It it would have been a mess. You know, you've you've got all these, you know, cable programs going national, and then and then you're watering down the talent pool and and two promotions in Memphis trying to work against each other. You know, Jarrett was the businessman. Lawler was the talent. Uh, they they probably needed each other more than they wanted to be with each other sometimes, but it would have been, you know, Lawler would not have been successful in running his own territory. And, you know, if Jarrett could have withstood, you know, not having Lawler for X amount of time, he, he would have been the more successful, but it, it just worked out better for everybody the way it did. I mean, I agree. I mean, when Jerry Lawler tried to take a vacation in late 1985 when Bill Dundee ran him out of Memphis. I mean, it was a catastrophe. No one was coming to wrestling. You know, it, as smart as Jerry Jarrett was in so many ways, you know, he just, he did not build any depth behind Lawler. You know, you could bring Jimmy Valiant in if he'd been out of town for a while and he'd pop the house. You know, you could bring various people in, 
but but there was nobody else that could be that long-term draw that you could really build around and uh you know Jarrett knew it and Lawler knew it and uh so that's that's why they had friction and that's why they kept working together that makes sense I remember when Jeff Jarrett debuted and got a push in the mid to late 80s and it was obvious to me that they were trying to build Jeff as the heir apparent to, you know, uh, and, uh, Jerry Lawler, who's getting older. I believe he turned 40 in 1990. And from day one, I absolutely, you know, no disrespect to Jeff Jarrett, who is a talented guy, but that was never going to work. And basically when, when Lawler got older and the, just the promotions started getting less and less potent until it finally went out of business. Yeah, I Jeff Jarrett was passed, pushed way too hard, way too fast. I mean, they, they pushed him right past Dundee as kind of the number two guy in the territory. And, and he didn't have the experience. He didn't have the, the size. And, you know, it, it, it was not a good look to, Hey, here's the promoter's son beating everybody. Yep. <laughs> when have we seen that before? Right. I, so. I mean, people see through that. They really do. Whether or not the promotions realize it. I mean, I remember in 87, when I first started getting tapes, they were, pushing this poster of Jeff Jarrett as like this sex symbol. And I'm like, I'm I'm 21, 22 years old. And I'm like, look, this is going to turn the guys against Jeff Jarrett even worse than they are now. And they did. Yeah. And, you know, and and I don't know if they'd been smart, they would have made an angle out of you're the promoter's kid, you know, they, they, which they never did, you know, to me, if I'm a heel, that's the first place I'm going and, and I'm sure the promotion wouldn't let them go there. But yeah, it, to, to me, it was, it was a turnoff. Um, you know, I, I, I've never been a big Jeff Jarrett fan. I think he's, you know, I mean, he's obviously a smart guy, but uh, in terms of charisma and in-ring talent, he never, he never did a lot for me. No, um, same here. I mean, I remember in the nineties, Jeff getting push after push with WCW and the WWF and just never getting over. And I'm not saying he's not a talented guy. I'm just saying that he does not have the charisma to be a major star in a national promotion. That's which wasn't going to happen. Yeah, hundred percent. All right. I'm getting a question from Edward Whipke. What if Jerry Jarrett let Jim Cornette book Memphis after Jim left WCW in 1990? I absolutely love this question because Jim Cornette is a very creative guy. He's a very smart guy, uh, knows his wrestling almost like nobody else. The first couple of years of Smoky Mountain, the booking was fantastic. And I can't help but think that if Jeff Jerry Jarrett had sat down with Jim and said, look, you know, I want you to be the lead heel manager. I want you to be the booker. You know, Jerry and I will get it back at some point because Every booker has a shelf life, but right now, this is what we'd like you to do. I mean, this is the promotion that Jim Cornette grew up watching, grew up being a photographer for. I mean, I, I can't help but think that, you know, the, with the right offer, he would do it, and it would have really helped the company. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, I think I think Jim's focus on that time was getting Smoky Mountain Wrestling up and going. I think that was just kind of a stopgap thing for him to to have some fun and, and do something different and kind of return to his roots. Uh, I, I think that, you know, it couldn't have hurt. <laughs> it could not have hurt to had him come in. By that point, he had a lot of connections in the business. He probably could have brought some new talent in. He understood 
the history of that area. He would understood how to book that territory. I, you know, they, they did, the territory did have kind of, you know, some, some brief better runs. They had the moon dogs feud in, in the early nineties and the smoky mountain feud in 95. But I, I think they would have been on much better footing for a while having Jim Cornette at the helm. I agree. And I also agree that, I mean, I certainly can't read his mind, but I have the feeling that Jim Cornette had the basic uh, blueprint in his mind for Smoky Mountain Wrestling before before he walked out of WCW in 1990. I, I mean, I think you're right that that was going to be his focus. But at the same time, if there was any way he could do both and book Memphis for six months in, in 91, early 91, it would have been beneficial to both parties. Yeah, it absolutely would. It would it would have been fantastic television, and and it would have been a you know the in ring product would have been better. The promos would have been better. It would have just been a better show. All right, your turn to pick a question, sir. Okay, uh, Mick, Mike Fahey, with so much of the promotion available on YouTube and elsewhere, what footage isn't available that you most wish was? So I'm 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 going to crawl into the real wayback machine on this one. I think the year that would have been most interesting to me to have the footage would, would be 1974. And that's the year when Lawler became the superstar in Memphis. Uh, Memphis had traditionally, you know, in the late sixties, early seventies, been a tag team, you know, it, it, the, the major feuds evolved around tag teams. They'd bring in a heel team like the interns or the medics or the Von Brauners. And, and they would face, you know, the Fargos or Jerry Jarrett and Tojo Yamamoto. Those those were the main events back in those days. And so in 74, Jarrett decides, hey, I'm going to give Lawler the big push. He has a feud with Fargo. It ends with, you know, Lawler winning and injuring, quote, injuring Fargo. And so there's no doubt that that Lawler's the top person in the promotion. And then he starts the quest for the title. And that's where he brings in all these people that he talks about being top 10 contenders for the NWA title. And uh, I wrote down some of the people that came in during this time frame, uh, the Sheik from Detroit, Bobo Brazil, Mr. Wrestling 2, Dick the Bruiser, Rufus R. Jones. And then the week before he takes on Jack Briscoe for the title, it's Jerry Briscoe. And, and I remember being a little kid watching this and, and, you know, the idea that like, you know, we're used to top tens in football and basketball and Lawler's wrestling the top 10, you know, wrestlers in the country. And, you know, he comes out with some fluke win or some DQ or something, but it's, it's always something that he can say, Hey, I won last week, blah, blah, blah. And so by the time Briscoe comes to town, the whole city of Memphis is just ready. They're just ready that, you know, this guy's a heel, but we're going to have the world champion. And uh, I, I, I mean, I remember being, you know, I'm eight or nine years old and the promotion for this was just brilliant. I was so hooked by it and I would love to be able to, to relive the tapes from that year. OK, you know what? I'm cheating a little bit here. I would go with they would film footage at the Mid-South Coliseum. And I mean, you know, that is what I would like to see, assuming or dreaming that some of it survived. I mean, I would love to see. In its entirety, that Jerry Lawler versus Jack Briscoe match, uh, the Lawler versus Bockwinkle matches, the Jerry Lawler and, and Dutch Mantell versus Bill Dundee and Buddy Landell, that Texas death match, which was supposed to be incredible, but no one 
who wasn't at the arena that night got to see it, got to see the whole thing. So if any of that footage is surviving and if Jarrett has access to it, I mean, I would love to see him release that in some form, whatever he has. Yeah, that's true. I mean, you, you always saw, you know, edited versions of the match. And then, you know, a lot of times they were, you know, if it was a big match, with with Dundee or something, then then they they not only edited it, but they put background music on it. So it's it's you know probably significantly different from the live experience. Um, so yeah, I mean you know the, some of those matches, you know, oh here's the match of the year in the Observer, but nobody actually even saw the entire match. They saw very exciting clips from the match. Yeah, and those clips, I mean, you know, we talked about you know ECW doing this. I mean, you can clip it down to make an eh match look really good, just keeping you know the good stuff out of that sixty minutes. Oh, oh, absolutely, absolutely, and and you know, it, it would be interesting to see how some of that stuff held up as well, because different times, different eras, different work styles. But yeah, I, I mean, I'd love to see, you know, forty minutes of Bachwinkle and Lawler, and 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 just. The, the crowd reaction throughout the entire match instead of just in certain spots of the match. Or that time that in 1981 where Hulk Hogan just blew into Memphis on a Monday night and wrestled Lawler and lost on a DQ. Then again, if you know what, this just dawned on me. If they actually had that whole match, they would have aired it every single week practically. <laughs> Look what Lawler did to Hogan, you know? It's, they, 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 they aired that a lot. They aired that yes. a lot. <laughs> That's for sure. And, and it, it was, uh, you know, hard interfered and it was a DQ. And But the, the, the fact that, uh, you know, Lawler got the, quote, win over Hulk Hogan. Yeah, that was, that was shown often. Oh, yeah. I, I remember... Mark Calloway, before, right before he became The Undertaker, was supposed to go into Memphis and participate in some tournament and wrestle Lawler as part of the tournament. And I forget if he either, like, canceled the booking or, like, was really careful that Lawler didn't make him look bad at all because he didn't want to be part of that montage. Yeah, and, well, I mean, they, they'd worked together. I mean, they had a pretty long-term feud, in, I think, in 89-ish. 89, yeah. Was, yeah. Yeah, but he was he was definitely on his way. I mean, that that was one of the really interesting things about, you know, Memphis wrestling is when the new guys come in after a couple of weeks, you could really tell, you know, okay, this guy's Bam Bam Bigelow. He's going to be a really big star. Okay, this guy's Brickhouse Brown. Not so much. Yeah. And and Callaway in in the time and the place, you know, even though he was green, you just knew, you know, here's a guy that's going to get a shot. I mean, you obviously didn't know he was going to be, you know, one of the most iconic wrestlers of all time eventually, but uh, you, you knew he, he was going to have some opportunity. No, I, I agree. I remember seeing him in Memphis in early 89 and just being like, you know, whoa, this guy, he's got size and athleticism. And once he, you know, figures out the business, he's got a lot of potential. Another guy like that was Sid, uh, Sid Vicious. I mean, I was there in Memphis when he debuted on their TV and it was like, whoa, potential superstar here. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, he had the look for the era, you know, if, if, if his, you know, if the top 10% of his head was as well-formed as the 90% of his body, he would, you know, he would have, <laughs> made, you know, he would have headlined pay-per-views for 10 years, but uh, he, he was underdeveloped in the wrong place. Yeah, I mean, Sid, he definitely had charisma. I remember when he came back to the WWF in like 94 or 95, 
and we heard about it in advance that, hey, he's going to be on TV. I mean, me and a bunch of people I know made it a point to watch Raw. So, I mean, he had something going on. He just never was able to completely put it together. Yeah, there was a clip, I think, of one time where he came out and it was him and Hogan and, and Warrior. And he looked like he dwarfed those guys, and you know, you know, and those guys were monsters. So, you know, he had he had that look. He, you know, he, he, you know, you just looked at him and you said, "Here's a main event guy." And then the bell rang, and you know, then he did promo, and you know, every time he did something, his value went down. <laughs> exactly. All right. Ryan Botwinick asks, "Do you think Vince could have used Lawler for the expansion over Hogan?" Lawler had a little national exposure with Andy Kaufman. And Ryan, I, I got to tell you, Lawler, look, he was on a late night show, middle of the week with Kaufman, and it just wasn't that big a deal nationally. I mean, it, you know, I heard about it. I think it, ha- it happened on a Thursday night because I was watching on Friday night and they had uh, Randall Tex Cobb on. And they were talking about what happened the night before. So I'm pretty sure that's how it went down. But it wasn't like all of a sudden, oh, everyone knows who Jerry Lawler was. Yeah, I mean, for, for, for the Memphis wrestling fans like we were, it was it was just electrifying. You know, you know, you're getting to see him on, on national television instead of local television. And then, you know, Kaufman goes off and does the stream of obscenities and sleeped out. And so it was it was you know, it was Jerry Springer before we had Jerry Springer. It was that type of television. That's a good way of looking at it. Uh, but but in terms of, you know, Jerry Lawler being the guy to, to no, no. You, you, there was no way you could have expanded nationally with, with a baby-faced Jerry Lawler at that point in time. Would would not have worked. I mean, I think Lawler is someone who is a little bit underrated. Like, I can see him taking over for Bruno Sammartino. And a lot of people right now just said, whoa, no way. He was too small. He didn't have the physique. Okay, but Jerry Lawler, like no one else I have ever seen in my entire life, could talk you into the building. So that's how much I think of Jerry Lawler. I think the AWA in 1984 should have moved the belt, not from Saruta to Rick Martel, but from Saruta to Jerry Lawler and have the match in Memphis and have Jerry Lawler be your Hulk Hogan, your Ric Flair. That's how highly I think of him. And, you know, I mean, their their options were limited, certainly. Um, but, yeah, your, your, react, your response to that. Yeah, I mean, I think Lawler's a fantastic worker. Um, you know, great as a heel, great as a babyface. But to get him over initially, I think he needs to be a heel. So if you're expanding nationally and you're putting Lawler on that platform, I think he needs to be a heel to get over. And I don't know that you expand the WWF with a heel champion at that point. No, that's uh, a good point. You know, it, and, you know, certainly he would have gotten over because, I mean, he's still over. You know, he's in his 70s and he's still yeah. over with that fan base. Um, but visually, when you look at him and you look at Hulk Hogan, I mean, the visual component was a huge part of what Vince was selling. And Lawler would not have visually looked like a guy that you're going to bring into a new market as an unknown entity and was going to sell a lot of tickets right out of the gate. No, you're, you're right. You, Lawler was one of those guys that you had to use as a heel first. And, you know, and we, we might get to this question later on. I mean, they someone asked, um, you know, who were the wrestlers in Memphis that got over in Memphis but really didn't get over anywhere else? 
pre WWF, that was kind of Jerry Lawler. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Um, he did, you know, start traveling into other territories. He, he went to Southwest Championship Wrestling. He went into Florida. And, but I think, you know, I think those were more talent scouting for him, honestly, more than anything. Uh, and, and picking up booking ideas and things like that. Uh, he, he wasn't really pushed as, you know, the top guy in those places. And, uh, but he wasn't going to be there long term anyway. Yeah, uh, he got over a little bit in Florida. I'll give him that. But like the AWA when he's out there with Tommy Rich against the Road Warriors. I don't know who came up with that booking concept, but it didn't work. I also want to talk a little bit about Hulk Hogan, uh, his fame based on the Rocky movie. I think it was less Hulk Hogan. Oh, wow. Look at this guy. Now he's a big movie star. I actually checked the credits of Rocky three. This is how crazy I am. He was the ninth guy down in the credits, so he, he certainly was not the star of Rocky Three. I think what happened was Vince McMahon saw the movie, he saw that character in the movie, and he's like, "I can make money off this character." Yeah, I think it was it was you know a small role in the overall movie, but it was it was a, he had a big impact in the movie. Yes, you know, and and I think wrestling promoters could look at this guy and say, Oh yeah, this is money. This is a guy that has that impact. So you're, you're right. It wasn't like he was in an hour of, of Rocky three, but he was, he was in a very memorable scene. Yeah, he was, it was a really good cameo role for him. All right, Steve, your turn. Okay. We're going to go to, um, Lawrence miles before Lawler's injury. Jimmy Hart never said anything. Then came the taken behind the barn and shoot him promo. If Lawler doesn't get injured, how long until Hart turns on him and becomes the mouth of the South? Was that ever in the works? Steve, That's can I that... interject really quickly? Sure. Jimmy Hart, based on everything I've seen, literally never said a word. It wasn't that he was quiet. It wasn't that, you know, he literally didn't say a word. I just wanted to, you know, emphasize that. Right. His his job was to stand behind Lawler and chew gum and, and wave his fist every once in a while. And, um, you know, Lawler wanted the rub from some guy who'd been a celebrity at some point. Right. Yeah. So, yeah. It's, it's, and, and really Lawler wrote in his book that, that he didn't like managers that had the spotlight on them. He thought the spotlight should be on the wrestler. And he talked about at one point he and Jim White were teamed up with Jimmy Kent and it didn't work out because Jimmy Kent wanted too much attention. And so that was, that was Lawler's philosophy you know, basically Lawler treated managers like you're the stooge and when it comes time to throw the, you know, chain into me, that's your job. Right. So it's, it's a really interesting question because I, I don't know how that would have developed. I mean, it, it in honesty, you know, I, it, it certainly wasn't good for the promotion that Lawler was out for a year, but in terms of the long term, I mean, they had a hot program for years and it didn't matter who Jimmy Hart was managing. He had so much heat they could bring in almost anybody and people wanted to see that person get killed because they were associated with Jimmy Hart. So it worked out tremendously well, you know, Hart couldn't have been a baby face manager, the, you know, what's the point. And so you've got to be a hill manager. And if you're with the top guy, who's not letting you do anything, you know, what's your role going to be in the future? You know, it was, it was very much a, a stroke of genius on, on Jerry Jarrett's part to, to cut that promo and, and to, you know, make Hart the heel that he did. Uh, but I honestly have no idea where that goes. If they, if, if the injury doesn't happen. 
I, I'm only guessing and speculating here, but I have the feeling that Jimmy Hart, uh, uh, Jerry Lawler would have been turned babyface not long after that injury actually occurred. It almost felt like the, you know, I, I've seen some of the footage and it almost felt like they were setting the stage for a Lawler Jimmy Hart split up, which obviously got messed up by a, a severely, my, I, I understand, broken leg. Right. And, and I understand that, uh, you know, even, you know, the houses were so bad in 1979, they tried to bring them in a few times and work gimmick matches and, and it even caused the situation to get worse. So, yeah, I mean, he was out almost an entire year. So, yeah. And, and you know, Jerry Calhoun. <laughs> Jerry Calhoun. Yeah. <laughs> Reverend don't Jerry. So Calhoun. rough, Jerry. Yeah. Yeah. Just, just, just touch him next time. Don't, don't take him. <laughs> All right. Vincent Waller asks, Thoughts on Iron Sheik's run-slash-appearance in Memphis and compare and contrast it with his run and appearance in Mid-South. I thought both showed the Sheik at his best, uh, gimmick fully in place, still very capable in the ring, and underrated on the mic. Here's my take on it. Like, Memphis, I mean, he wasn't, uh, Iron Sheik was not a big star until he won the WWF Championship. I mean, he did main events in Georgia at the Omni with Ivan Koloff as his partner, basically as Ivan Koloff's uh, second guy against Dusty Rhodes and Dick Murdoch. Well, you know, that's, that's a pretty easy role to f- fall into. Um, but, you know, he didn't get a push, a big push in Mid-South. He didn't get a big push in Mid-Atlantic. But in Memphis, which was a territory, let's just be honest with you, it's a little, it's a couple of steps down from the old Florida slash Mid-Atlantic ch- uh, championship wrestling. And that's where he fit in well as a main event foil versus Jerry Lawler. Yeah, I, you know, I had seen uh, Iron Sheik probably in Georgia before he came to Memphis. I thought of him as, as you know, a top guy. Um, I'd seen him do the the gimmick with the Persian clubs. Um, I, th- I, you know, I, I think he played his role well there. I don't remember him being there for a particularly long period of time. I don't remember, you know, like, a series of great matches with Lawler or anything, but I think he came in and, and did the, you know, he was a good foreign heel. And that was, you know, th- that was during that time frame when they could get a lot of fresh faces in and out, you know, people, you know, would come in and out quickly. You know, you, you that was one of the fun things about turning in every week is you never knew who was going to show up. Oh, Terry Funk's here this week and he's going to be here Monday night, you know, after he hadn't been there for six months or a year or whatever. So, yeah, I, I thought he was fine in Memphis. I don't know that it was, you know, to me, a terribly memorable run. Iron Sheik was in the WWF as the great Hussein Arab in 1979 and 1980. And, I, you know, I look back and, wow, he was a really good worker. And we're recording this uh, June 4th, uh, 2022. So it was exactly 43 years after his match with Bob Backlund at Madison Square Garden, which was one of Bob Backlund's best title defenses ever available on tape. That said, they had a battle royal that night with the winner getting a shot against Bob Backlund. Great Hussein won the battle royal and got the match with Backlund, but that's how little, uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? They had no faith in him as a draw, just, hey, Bob Backlund against the great Hussein Arab. Yeah, I remember. I, you know, I, I don't, you know, I'm not, you know, I can't remember 
crystal clear where I saw this, but I remember after seeing him as the Iron Sheik for years, I saw an old wrestling magazine or something where he was, was he was appearing in the different name and he was, you know, headlining Madison Square Garden. And it's just one of those aha moments, you know, like, oh, this person's totally changed his persona, which would happen, you know, in professional wrestling. Of course. All right. All right. Your turn for a question, sir. Question from Edgar Munez. How would the course of the promotion change if Jerry Lawler didn't break his leg? I think that's kind of an interesting question because I think it goes back to Jarrett's goal of having Lawler be a world champion. Uh, in late 1978, you know, Pat McGinnis, one of, the, one of the big names in 70s wrestling, you think of, you know, Andre the Giant, Dusty Rhodes, and Pat McGinnis as kind of the top three names of 70s wrestling. He, he comes into the territory and he's the, quote, CWA world champion. This, this championship you know, is drained out of thin air. And that belt then goes to superstar Billy Graham. And then Jerry Lawler wins, wins that title from, from Billy Graham. And uh, Jimmy Cornette has said, you know, the matches with, with Graham were terrible. And I don't think they ever showed a second of the matches with Lawler and Graham on TV. So Lawler is now, quote, a world champion. And this is the time that, that Jarrett has split. You know, he stopped working with the NWA for a while. And he's working with the AWA. And I think part of that reasoning is, hey, there's this whole board of people in the NWA I have to convince that Jerry Lawler should be a world champion. In the AWA, there's one person I have to convince that that Jerry Lawler should be a world champion. So I, I think what they were trying to work towards is nobody bought this as a legitimate world championship, even in the Memphis area. But I think they, the 79, that, that Jarrett would have tried to do some sort of unification match with Bob Winkle and tried to find a way to get Larry, Jerry Lawler you know, make him the AWA world champion. I think that's the direction they were going before he got hurt. Now, do you think that would have been a, a short-term or a long-term thing? Oh, I, you know, in, in that time and place, I can't imagine it being a long-term thing because, you know, to for that to work, then Lawler's got to work the AWA schedule, right? Yep. So, the, so he's got to be in Denver and San Francisco and St. Paul and Chicago and, and he's not in Memphis and he's not in Louisville and, you know, Maybe it's a couple of months at most, um, just just so it doesn't look bad in the long term. It's not one of those one week wonder type of deals. But uh, I can't imagine Verm, you know, would have said, "Yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna split, you know, my champion, and he's gonna work in your territory as much as he's works in my territory." I mean, it didn't even work in 1988 when they tried to do that, so it certainly wouldn't have worked in '79. No, it it definitely didn't work in 88 despite Jerry Lawler's uh yeah I thought he did a really good job presenting himself as a legitimate world champion instead of a company world champion but in I mean in the long term where are you going Portland continental by that point you know the wrestling business the territories had been flattened outside of you know Crockett and the WWF yeah ab- absolutely I, I agree I thought Lawler did a good job with the belt it did not shock me when he was quote stripped of it though. It was just, you know, you've you've got two different promoters working with two different agendas, and it just didn't seem like it was going to be a long-term deal. No, it didn't. All right, Jeremy Marshall asks, who's a guy who we talked about a little bit about this before? Who's a guy who clicked in Memphis but was never a big deal outside of that territory? I think Lawler to some extent. I also think Bill Dundee might be the poster child for this. He clicked in Memphis for sure, but I really didn't see him get over anywhere else. He was fine 
in the mid card in mid south teaming with Dutch Mantel, but that's all it was. Um, any thoughts on someone who someone else who might have clicked in Memphis, but not anywhere else? Yeah, that, that, I agree with 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 your statements there. Uh, somebody mentioned Troy Graham. I think that's a that's a pretty obvious one. I mean, he was a guy that you could put in a main, main event in Memphis uh, if you needed to, but you know he never really did much anyplace else. In, in terms of a tag team, uh, this is you know they weren't huge stars, but they were main event. They were in a lot of main events in Memphis over the years, and that's Don Bass and Roger Smith. And, you know, they, they would just change their gimmick every year or two. They were the assassins. They were fire and flame. They were the interns. And so those were guys who were worked on top for a lot of years and, and probably, you know, drew and made significant money. But, you, but, you know, the fans didn't really see them as individual superstars either. No, I can see that. You know, I wanted to talk a little bit about Dream Machine. You know, someone said, oh, you know, Dream Machine fits that criteria. You know more about this than I do, Steve. But from everything I've seen in Memphis, Dream Machine, you know, he wasn't a main eventer in Memphis. He was more of a mid-card guy. Um, you know, he had that hilarious video with uh, Jimmy Hart bringing in the new fabulous ones. But I, I just didn't see him as a guy who really clicked in Memphis. Or, or maybe I'm wrong. Well, you know, the, he was the uh, first guy they brought back when Lawler healed from the leg injury. And, and of course, you could have stuck me in there and it would have sold out the Mid-South Coliseum. And they stuck the Dream Machine in there and it sold out the Mid-South Coliseum. And he was a guy, he was kind of like the Phil Hickerson of the 80s and that, you know, he was a good guy to have on the card at any point. And if you had to pull him into a main event, he had enough believability that people would say, okay, that makes sense. You know, he's he's legitimately tough. He he, he fits in, in that spot, but he wasn't, no, a guy that you would, you know, put in the main event every week. All right. I, I think you have made his case quite well. I thought he was a good interview. I loved him as Troy T. Tyler. But like I said, I mean, you know, they, you've acquitted him quite well. All right. One more question for each of us. You go first, Steve. Okay. Let's go with the great Neil Mascaris question. Oh, that was mine. <laughs> Oh, I, I still <laughs> no, that's okay. We can we can wrap up with this one. All right, Mark Hurtwick, is it true that Mill Mascaris once did a Mascaris once did a stretcher job in Memphis? Too bad there's not somebody around that we could ask about that smile. Well, uh, you know that's that's been a subject of, of great controversy over the years. And the late uh, Scott Bowden talked about that endlessly on on his podcast on Memphis wrestling, and he and Jim Cornette debated it. Um, Jerry Jarrett's position has always been yes, that was. That was Mill under the mask doing a stretcher job in Memphis. As as bizarre as that sounds, there's information that the wrestling license was for uh, Francisco Flores. Hope I said oh, that. Oh, wait a minute, smoking gun here. That, that uh, also wrestled as the Mexican Angel. Now he was not a regular in the territory at that time, so it's like, oh, did they just say, well, Mill doesn't have a a uh, wrestling license in Tennessee, so we'll just use this wrestling license. And it's one of those things at this point we'll probably never know. Lawler doesn't remember. Idol says, yeah, I think it was. <laughs> Jared says it was. But, you know, for him to just randomly show up one Monday night in his career in Memphis and do a stretcher job for Jackie Fargo, it, it doesn't seem quite in character. I, 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 I loved and I missed the great, late, great Scott Bowden. I knew him back in the 90s. Uh, when we were both on America Online, when that was a thing. 
And I, I mean no disrespect from this, but when Scott passed away, the number of people who believed that that was actually Mil Moscaris went from one to zero. <laughs> I, like Jerry Jarrett, no disrespect to Jerry Jarrett, but like, like he would never, oh, Jerry would never bring in a fake Mil Moscaris or anything like that. Come on, that, Mil yeah. Moscaris is not doing that. Would he bring Dickie Steinborn in and call him Mr. Wrestling? Would he bring Bill Dromo in and call him the Super Destroyer? I mean, those things would not have happened under Jerry Jarrett's watch, right? They had a mass superstar, right? Yeah, I think that was Bill Dromo as well. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, okay, I think we've we've cracked that case wide open. I would bet literally anything. It was not Aaron Rodriguez that night under the mask. Okay, that wraps up the wrestling part of Stick to Wrestling for this week. We haven't done it in a while. We're going to do extra innings. Uh, We're going to talk about the best albums of 1982, 40 years ago today. If you don't want to hear about that, thank you for listening. If you do, here we go. Steve, in your opinion, what was the fifth best album released in the year 1982? Okay, so 1982, I just quickly jotted some of my favorite albums. I had three honorable mentions, which would be Back to Samoa from the Angry Samoans, Milo Goes to College by The Descendants, and Beautiful Vision by Van Morrison. Uh, My my number five pick is kind of an oddball pick in a way, Devo, Oh No, It's Devo. Oh, wow. No no hit singles off that, kind of their career arc. They were no longer the hot new thing. Roy Thomas Baker produced it, the guy who had worked with Queen in the Cars. Very slickly produced and just hooks, hooks, hooks. Everywhere's a hook. So uh, a a fun album and a very uh, underappreciated effort. Steve, I am going to re-listen to that album uh, in the very near future, like maybe Monday, Tuesday, because I remember getting that album in 1982 and not liking it. And I probably listened to it twice and I will give it a re-listen and I dedicate that to you. (laughs) All right. Start with That's Good, then go to Peekaboo, and then go to uh, Big Mess. All right. I have an honorable mention, number six, One on One by Cheap Trick. This was kind of a turn off your brain and rock out album. My number five is Nebraska by Bruce Springsteen, which is turn on your brain and get really depressed album. The story behind the album, I think, is fantastic. They made a deal with the record company where, okay, we can, we will put out a very slickly produced album after this one, Bruce, you just slide this album under the, underneath the door and we'll put it out for you. He recorded it by himself on an eight track, uh, not an eight track recorder, like a 10 track recorder or something like that. The album's a little bit weird. They have this uh, song called Highway Patrolman that someone should have said, Bruce, let me work on this song with you because it's not very good. But overall, it was a fantastic album, totally different than anything Bruce had ever put out before and some excellent songs on it. I love the album. Yeah, and Atlantic City has become something of a kind of a alt-country standard. It's been done by you know John Anderson and the band and a host of other people. So I think that one really stands out as, as one of his, his lasting uh, songs, one of many. Okay, uh, number four, I have a very dark album, The Blue Mask by Lou Reed. Uh, very good guitar work on this album. The title track is somewhat insane, if you've never heard it. But uh, it's uh, Lou uh, kind of exercising some demons, I think. So that's that's my number four. 
that's the thing. I haven't heard every album from 1982. If you are on our group, in our Facebook group, and you say, hey, what about this album? It's like either I didn't hear it or it just wasn't in my top six. I had not heard that album by Lou Reed. So I will once again, I will check that one out as well. Thanks to you, Steve. You're really good with this stuff, by the way. You, I mean, yeah. you put out those those list of like top songs of the 50s and the 60s. I, I miss those. But like it, sounds, it feels like you've done or have you done all of them? I've done all I'm doing. <laughs> oh, that, all right, there you go. Yeah, I'm kind of a hardcore music nerd historian, so yeah, this is certainly uh, right in my wheelhouse as well. You're you're not just retired from work; you're retired from that stuff, right? <laughs> all right, my number four, and it's a really good album. But this album was the third from this band, and it was the third best album when it came out. But it was their last really good album, "Under the Big Black Sun" by X. Excellent album. Uh, the lead singer was a female. Xene Cervenka had lost her sister in a car accident, and a bunch of the songs are dedicated to her. I did not know this when I bought the album in 1981, but it all makes sense now. A really good track. Yeah, uh, John Doe, I think, has recently relocated to Austin. I saw him perform uh, briefly this year at South by Southwest, and he, he recently did a show in the north of Dallas. So, uh, oh, always a always a solid band. X, uh, they they've never done anything to embarrass themselves. That's for sure. No, okay. there is a a documentary out there. Uh, and and mo- a lot of music documentaries are not very good. X's was really good. I'm trying to think of the name, the name of it. Steve, B, do you know this one? The Unheard Music. Okay, yeah, I'm not familiar with that. I I recommend it to everyone. Like I said, a lot of music docs stink. This one was really good. Steve, what's your number three? For number three, I have Imperial Bedroom by Elvis Costello. My uh, number one. Okay, produced by Jeff Emmerich, who'd been the engineer for the Beatles. Love Beyond Belief, the first song on that album. And then there's just a lot of just well-constructed Elvis Costello songs. So, you know, it's it's it it holds up. Good record. No, I I definitely agree. Obviously, it is my number one pick. Uh, just one fantastic, well-written song after another. To this day, I have a book about Elvis Costello and like what the author perceives his songs as being about. I haven't gotten to Imperial Bedroom yet. I probably should because a lot of these songs are like, okay, they're they're great. They, you know. But they're they're interesting. But what exactly is this song about? Like Elvis had must have had some interesting stuff going on in his life. Yeah, and, and just the number of songs he was he was releasing on those albums during that time period from from Get Happy and you know Imperial Bedroom and Trust and and just so much high quality material. He 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 was really uh, doing fantastic work. Yeah, I remember getting great ha- Get Happy, and I'm like, okay, twenty songs are going to be like a minute and thirty seconds each. No. This was back when we were buying records. It was like he was cramming music into those those vinyl grooves. Yeah, that and that might be my number one album of 1980. There's there's just a you know a stretch of songs on that album that I could listen to every day, and it just makes me happy. Yeah, yeah. 1980 was a phenomenal year. It might have been the last phenomenal year, at least in my opinion. My number three is Combat Rock by The Clash. It's not a great album by Clash standards, and when I first got it. You know, I'm looking for, you know, obviously uh, give him enough rope or whatever. And that just wasn't happening. And now I realize that the band had been living in New York for a long time. 
And just that late 70s sound had given way to something in the early 80s. If you listen to that album in a vacuum, I think it's a really good album. Yeah, it was it was kind of um, weird that that's the album that kind of broke them pop in America with Rock the Casbah and Should I Stay and Should I Go? And it to, to me, it's not nearly as strong as, as their previous records. I mean, there was, you know, obviously Sandinista was a three album set, so that could have been pared down a bit. Uh, but yeah, and then and then the sample from MIA on Paper Planes comes comes from that album. So uh, some very good stuff. I learned about 20 years ago that Sandinista and there was nothing in the album like the album materials that explain this. But Sandinista was a three album set. And what you were supposed to do was get a cassette tape and pick out the songs you like and make your own album. That makes no sense, but I read that from someone who would know. Okay. Well, you know, you get to pay extra for that privilege, right? I guess. I mean, there was a lot of uh, Sandinista. And when you think about it, that's really what you should do with Sandinista because there was a lot of junk on that album. Absolutely. You know, it's it's a great band. They, they Their best stuff was their earliest stuff. And, you know, like a lot of groups, uh, sometimes they can become popular with with stuff that isn't their best music but i think i think rock the casbah really holds up and i saw the clash on that tour and i obviously i'm a big clash fan but they stunk they were just out of gas at that point all right steve what's your number two uh for number two i've got 1999 by prince um that was kind of his breakthrough album he had you know he had i want to be your lover which was a pop hit i think in 1979 and he had kind of a few critically acclaimed albums, but 1999, you know, I had the title song that was a big hit, had Little Red Corvette was a big hit. And he was he was putting a lot of different styles of music together. It was kind of funk. It was kind of new wave synthesizer. It was kind of post-Hendrix guitar work. And uh, I, I think that was some of his best work on that album for me. I remember in early, 19, uh, like spring 1984, Reading in the Boston Phoenix that Prince was putting out an album that was going to make him a megastar, and that was Purple Rain. And 1999, it looked like really set the stage for that. Yeah, I think so. I think I think 1999 really got him noticed, and and everybody who knew who Prince was after that record, and then with the movie and the, and the soundtrack, yeah, then he became a superstar. Not exactly the best movie, but the soundtrack was really good. <laughs> My number two was Thriller by Michael Jackson, which I considered putting at number one. But at the end of the day, I liked Elvis Costello's Imperial Bedroom better. But there's no doubting doubt that Thriller was an amazing record that they put, you know, CBS Records put everything they had into it and they got plenty out of it. I mean, Michael Jackson became a superstar in pop like no one I had ever seen before. And I don't think I've ever seen since. Yeah, I, I would say they milk that album like you would milk a cow with 17 udders. I mean, they had, <laughs> <laughs> like everything was a single on that album, right? You know, I, I uh, not a huge Michael Jackson fan. You, I, I can admire, you know, it was good work. It's just not something that I personally enjoy a great deal. No, and again, if you if you told me, okay, you get to listen to Imperial Bedroom or Thriller, I'm taking Imperial Bedroom every time. Anxious to see what your number one is, sir. All right, my number one album, personal favorite, 1982, is Marshall Crenshaw's debut album titled Marshall Crenshaw. All right, what did you like about it? What were the singles well, from that album? I kind of, 
I remember some of the stuff from Field Day, but going back okay. to this one, I know I saw some of this stuff on MTV. Right. Well, the the kind of like hit song was "Someday, Someway," which was okay. kind of a minor top forty hit. Uh, much better songs on the album. There she goes again as the lead track on the album. Just like a great story of romantic longing, like the girl that you know you can't have, but you you know you want more than anything else in the world. Cynical Girl is a great song. Love that song. Yeah, uh, Mary Ann, an, another you know incredibly well written song. Just great little two and a half, three minute pop songs that just last. They just hold up. It's just again just music I could listen to every day. I could listen to There She Goes Again and Cynical Girl and Mary Ann and, and just be happy. All right. You have given me homework, sir, and this is I like this. You have you have recommended music to me that I otherwise may not have listened to, and I, I'm going to give it a shot. Yeah, glad to do so. All right, so donate to Stick to Wrestling so I can actually buy these albums. And uh, I, I'm, I'm glad ours were different. You know, we had one the same, and I want to dedicate Elvis Costello's Imperial Bedroom being my number one and Steve's number three to our good friend Jeff Bowdrin. And this hour has gone by so fast, Steve. Thank you for coming. The next time we have you on, we need to take an hour discussing the greatness of John Paul. Oh, my gosh. John Paul George Ringo, the uh, Memphis AWA <laughs> mid-card babyface who, uh, who acted as excited as, you know, me mowing the lawn about doing a wrestling promo. Yes. <laughs> I, this is why you need to join the Facebook group, everybody. I'm sitting there going, yeah, I'm watching some Memphis wrestling from 1989, and there's this guy, John Paul, and he's pretty good. I like him. I, I think he's good in the ring. I think his promos are realistic. And Steve gets on, he's like, yeah, shut up. This guy sucked. <laughs> yeah, we weren't, we weren't in synchronicity on the talents of, the, of John Paul. I saw him as a guy who... Like I said, I thought he came across as a humble young guy who was decent in the ring. But like, no, I'm not saying he's Hulk Hogan or anything. For me, the name just killed him. It was just like, that's just a ridiculous, you know. Good you, point. You're in professional wrestling. You can choose any name of the in the world. You know, don't choose George Ringo. You know, <laughs> find something that makes sense. It, you're right. It is 1989. We've got the Honky Tonk Man, Brutus Beefcake, etc., and you just need a little more of a, a charismatic name than that. Steve, this hour flew by. Thank you for coming on. And, and you shared a great deal of historic knowledge. Thank you again. Well, it's my pleasure. I'm, I'm a huge Memphis wrestling nerd, and I think that probably comes across. But uh, it's just a passion of mine that's been there for decades. Uh, and we all appreciate you sharing. And I want to thank Brian Last for Arcadian Vanguard for giving me this forum i want to thank lou kippelman who does so much great work making this show sound way better than it ought to be and this has been a production of the arcadian vanguard podcast network go vols in the college world series this concludes our podcast day 